with us last Sunday, we kicked off a brand new series that we are simply calling Jesus. And we're going to be in this series all the way through Easter Sunday. And I know that when you think about a series title like Jesus, you're thinking, wow, that doesn't sound really exciting. But listen, it should sound exciting. Let me, let me tell you what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, the next few months, in fact. We're going to be learning about Jesus in the middle. I'm not trying to make a political statement with Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to say. Most of us know very well book-end Jesus. And what I mean by that is we have a really good understanding of who Christmas Jesus is and even Easter Jesus, but we don't know a whole lot about Jesus in between. And so for the next several weeks, the next few months, I want us to walk through the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to learn about Jesus in the middle. We're going to be learning some stuff about Jesus that quite honestly will change the way some of you look at Jesus and even think about him. We're going to break down some stereotypes. You guys are going to come away from this, you know, every now and again after a week or maybe at the end of the whole series and think, you know what, I used to think this about Jesus. Now I think this other thing about Jesus. Let me give you a a gospel lesson before we jump into the sermon. You know, all four of the gospels are written by evangelists. They were evangelists who were preaching about Jesus, and they were trying to help people understand specifically about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what began to happen is that over time, the people who were familiar with Jesus and they knew something about his background or maybe they had been in the crowds when Jesus was preaching the sermons, you know, live and in person, they were beginning to die off. And so a lot of people didn't have a familiarity with who Jesus is. And so they would keep preaching the sermons about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but then they started to give the stories that answer this question. You're going to hear this question posed constantly over the next several weeks. They were answering the question, who is the man hanging on the cross? And so here's my preaching goal over the next several weeks. It's that when we get to Easter, you would be able to symbolically point to the cross and say, I know who the man is hanging on the cross. In fact, I hope that you'll say it in a very New Testament way. The man hanging on the cross is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I hope that you'll be able to make it personal so that you can say the man on the cross is God. He is the Lamb who has taken away my sins. So we're going through the Gospels. Again, specifically, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And guys, I want to tell you that there are going to be some Sundays where we just kind of abruptly end and pick up where we left off. In fact, that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 19. And listen, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. If you'll reach inside of your bulletin, there's what we call message notes and The scripture passage that we're going to use for today, it's on the front, and there's some fill-in-the-blanks on the back if that serves you, and we want you to have some take-home value today. But I want to pick up in the story, and so I need to bring you up to speed. Now, first of all, let me tell you guys, look at me. or I'm not asking you to look at me. I'm not trying to demand anything of you. You're going to need to lean forward. I want you to get this. And sometimes I'm going to sound like the preacher, and sometimes I'm going to seem like a teacher, and sometimes I might sound like a boring old seminary professor. Not that I had any who were boring, just in case they're listening to the podcast. But there are going to be times when you just need to lean forward. This is one of those times. In Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, John the Baptist and Jesus are born. They're cousins. 
And in Luke chapter 3, Jesus and John are older. John is just a few months older than Jesus, but they're about 30 years of age, and you'll, you'll catch this as we start to read the text. But John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he is preaching. And let me tell you something. It is like nothing the people had ever heard or experienced in their whole lives. Let, let me tell you what their worship experience was like on a weekly basis. They would go into a local synagogue, and uh, they would just basically sit where everyone could see each other. They kind of hold each other accountable. And they would listen to a rabbi just go through the same old, same old, same old, same old things that they had always heard. But listen, their religion had become meaningless ritual. They weren't getting anything out of it. They would go to synagogue, quite frankly, the way many of us go to church, just to be honest. They, they did it out of ritual. Hey, it's the weekend. You're supposed to go to church. The truth is that some of you are here today because it's just what you're supposed to do on Sunday morning in the South. But when John the Baptist came on the scene, they were like, holy smokes, what is going on here? This guy doesn't sound like the rabbi that I grew up with. This doesn't sound like any other teacher we've ever heard. The, the, the people would say it like this, what kind of prophet must this be? And what's funny about that is that they had never met a prophet before. Sure, there had been teachers, but a prophet is someone who comes to give the message of God, not at just an old, dried up, dead, doesn't mean anything sort of lecture, but a real word from God. And for 400 years, the Jewish people had not heard God speak. They, there hadn't been a prophet on the scene for 400 years because that's the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But when they see John the Baptist preaching, when they hear him preach, they begin to think of guys like Elijah in the Old Testament. And, and John the Baptist kind of looked like a wild man because he had, he had funny clothes for the day. He had clothes that were made out of um, um, like animal skins. And his hair was too long. And it wasn't combed like everybody else's. And he, he didn't eat the kind of food that everybody else was eating. He, he ate these big locusts or grasshopper-looking things, and he would dip them in wild honey. And then he preached, and he was what I imagine is like this hellfire brimstone kind of preacher, and he's just letting it roll. And the people are loving it. They're listening to him thinking, wow, what in the world is going on here? And I love the way Mark describes John's preaching and the crowd who came to hear him preach because he said it would be easier to count the people who didn't come out to hear the sermons than the people who did. He says that all of Judea and everyone living in Jerusalem came to hear him preach. Do you know why? Because they were starving to death for something real. They were starving to death for truth. They were hungry for God. And now here's the prophet of God and he's preaching the word of God. And man, they're just eating it up. John, when he begins to preach, he has a simple message. And the message is, get ready, because Jesus is coming. Get ready for Jesus. Repent of your sins and be baptized. Jesus is coming. And again, it's a fiery message. People are digging it. They're coming out to be baptized. And then the story changes a little bit. Listen to these two verses, starting in verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Okay, let's talk about Herod for just a couple of minutes and John's preaching. Herod was a horrible, despicable man. 
There's one story about him in the Gospel of Matthew where the Magi see the star, they come looking for Jesus, and word gets out about it. It gets to Herod that these men have coming looking or have come looking for the king of the Jews. Now for Herod, who was the king, that was a direct threat. And so what he wanted to do, and he worked out this slick little plan with the, with the Magi, is he wanted to find out where Jesus was so that he told them he wanted to worship him. But later in a dream, the angels told the wise men that Herod just wanted to kill the baby, which is indeed what he wanted to do. So they kind of tricked him. And so for Herod, the way to get back at the people, to try to kill baby Jesus, if you look at the timeline, he could have killed every baby boy one years old or one year old and under. But just because he could, and to be extremely cruel, and to scare the people, he had every baby boy two years old and under executed. A mean guy who could do anything. One of the things that he did, and it's what made John come after him in his preaching is that he took a woman as a wife that did not belong to him. Now, let me tell you something else about a leader like Herod. A leader like Herod likes yes-men, suck-ups, brown-nosers. You know what I'm talking about. People who only tell him what he wants to hear. And if you were not one of those men, you didn't have an audience with Herod and... God be with you should you say anything against him because he could have you killed and nobody would even ask where you went. So it's a big deal for John to come to him preaching against him for his marriage to Herodias. Let me explain this. And I know we've got a lot of explanation here up front. Herod could take any woman in the kingdom that he wanted to be his wife. And one of the women he chose, because he had several wives, but one of the women was a woman named Herodias, but she happened to be the wife of his brother. So she's his sister-in-law. But then in a very... um. Well, I was going to pick a state here, but I'm not going to do that. Actually, I've got about four or five states rolling around in my mind, and I know that some of you are thinking that I'm talking about all southern states here, and I'm not. You ever been to New Jersey? Yeah, I have. they got broncos and uncles there too. But, but Herod, Herodias, was not only... Herod's sister-in-law, she was also his niece. And so there's an incestuous relationship here, and John came and told him that it was wrong. Now, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of the details, but Mark in Mark chapter 6, he does give us a lot of the details. And he says that in spite of John telling Herod that he's a sinner and that he's doing things wrong, Herod liked the guy, and so he kept him near. Now, Mark said that Herod didn't always agree with John, but he liked John. He listened to John. I would say that while the truth hurts, and truth does hurt, doesn't it? None of us like to be rebuked for the things that we do wrong, and Herod didn't like it, but he knew that there was some truth in John. Maybe he, and and although he probably wouldn't have known how to say it, maybe he knew that this guy does have the word of the living God. So he's listening because he likes John. But Herodias, well, she's a woman scorned. And she did not like John because she likes her new deal. Maybe she liked Philip, Herod's brother, but she really liked Herod. He's the big man in the kingdom. He has a bigger house 
than her former husband. This guy has the platinum card. He's got it all together. She likes her arrangement. And John's threatening it. Well, one night, Herod had a dinner party, and kings like this would regularly throw a party where they get to flex their muscles a little bit, and they would invite you know, their, their friends in and the people that would really pump them up and say, yay, Herod, you're the greatest leader ever. Even if they don't mean it, they would cheer for him. And, you know, they were in his corner. But these kings would also invite the enemies. Now, they weren't spoken enemies because if you were a spoken enemy, you would just be. But Herod knew. And so he would invite the people in who were marginally his enemies and he would flex his muscles in front of them to scare them and intimidate them. These were not just like a one-night party. These were sometimes drunken orgies that would last for days and weeks. At one of these parties, Herodias was there, of course, but so was her young daughter. And Herod was infatuated with her. And she was doing a very seductive dance And she caught Herod's eye and sort of in one of these drunken moments of, you know, being irrational, he just said, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. He's making a proposition for what would it take to make you one of my wives as well? And she's a young girl, doesn't really know what to ask for, so she pulls her mother, Herodias, aside and says, what should I ask for? Well, Herodias is married to Herod, so you know, it probably didn't work exactly like this in first century Judea, but she figures she's already got half the kingdom, so she'll just get rid of an enemy. Tell Herod that you want the head of John the Baptist brought to you on a platter. And so now Herod is caught between a rock and a hard place. What does he do? He's the big man. He's been flexing his muscles in front of everybody. He's the big man. You know, and he's made this offer. If he reneges on it, he's going to look like a fool in front of friend and foe. So he doesn't like it but he sends an executioner to the prison. Executioner cuts off the head of John, brings it back to the party on a platter. Quite a story, isn't it? Here's one of the takeaways that I want you to get today. See, the temptation for us is to look at a guy like John the Baptist and think, wow, he died way too young. Or how sad and how tragic that his life ended so soon. I don't think that that's the way John would have us understand his life at all. I I think that he would want us to see that this is a great testimony to God. Small town boy, humble parents, humble home, nothing special, nothing ordinary. Yet for months, maybe years, he's had the ear of the Roman leaders in his, in his area. You know that there are stories, they're, they're not written in the Bible, but there are, there are stories that, of course, the Romans would have never wanted written down anywhere. And so they're written in religious tradition that many in Herod's household put their faith and trust in Jesus and became followers of the way, which is what early Christians were. Before they were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. They became followers of the way because of the preaching of John the Baptist. So I think that John would say, wow, God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. See, one of the things that I want you to get out of this whole series is not just, not just a group of facts, not, not just a sermon each week where you can walk out and go, wow, 
our pastor just really wowed us today. I want to give you a new way of looking at the Bible, looking at the stories of the Bible. I don't want them to just be flat words on a page. I want them to jump out off the page. I want you to understand that these are historical events. That's one of the things that Luke's very careful to point out. These are not once upon a time stories. These aren't fairy tales. There are real people in these stories, and you can go back through the annals of history, not just religious history, and find men like Herod and Philip the Tetrarch and Caesar Augustus and Pontius Pilate. These are real people, real stories. They have real lives. There are real emotions involved in here. But I also want you to see this, that the people that we read about in Scripture pulled Jesus out of the mix, okay, because Jesus was human but also the Son of God, But the rest of the people that we read about in the Bible, I mean even the major characters like John the Baptist, like Abraham, like Moses, they are extraordinary and ordinary. They are ordinary, regular, everyday, average people just like you and me, but God does extraordinary things through them because they have made themselves available to Him. And I'm going to say that a lot over the next few weeks. Because when we get into some of these other characters like Peter, James, John, men who become the leaders of the early church, I mean men who have given us the Gospels of Jesus, they're cut out of the same cloth or the same skin that you and I are. The color may be a different tint. Sure, I'll give you that. But we're cut out of the same material. They were ordinary just like us, but God did extraordinary things through them. So here's what I want to make sure that you get today. God has a plan and a purpose and a mission for your life. No matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done in life and no matter what's been done to you, And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, maybe, Jimmy, you're talking to the person next to me, but you can't be talking to me because I'm too big of a sinner. No, you're not. You don't know the things I've done. I don't have to know the things that you've done. I'm telling you that no matter who you are or where you've been, no matter what you've done in life and no matter what's been done to you, if you are here today, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And He wants to do something extraordinary through your life. I'm telling you this. When John the Baptist, who, when we're reading this story, he's about 30 years of age. But he spent most of his years as a part of a religious commune. It's kind of a whole hippie sort of thing out in the desert. Reading the scrolls... They, Reading the Old Testament, that's what we would call it, but for him it would have been the the Torah scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It would have been some of the historical scrolls, but certainly the prophetic scrolls. In the little commune that he grew up in, he probably never had an audience larger than 50 or 75 people. And when he comes on to the scene again, you guys have already heard it, everybody is coming out to hear this long-haired, crazy-looking, country, wilderness-dwelling preacher talk about God and being ready for Him, that He's coming to us. He would have never imagined that. And some of you can't imagine that God could use you. And I'm telling you, He used John the Baptist. He can use you. Let me read a few more verses. Verses 19 and 20 are almost like a little footnote there. Luke jumps right back into the story where John is preaching and the people are coming out to hear him and be baptized. Verse 21 When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. 
And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So maybe you've seen bulletins or religious pictures where they show a dove there. This, that's why it's represented that way. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then verse 23. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. The second thing that I want you to walk away with today, and this is where we're going to be for the rest of our time together. Don't despise small beginnings. Let me add something to that. Don't despise the small place where you are right now and don't hate the wilderness where you may be right now. Let me unpack this. When the gospel writers are putting together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they had no idea that some 2,000 years later, there would be a group of people living in the Western world gathered up at 887 Pitt School Road Southwest, Concord, North Carolina, 28027. Opening the Gospels, learning about Jesus. They wouldn't have called him Jesus. They would have called him by his Hebrew name, Yeshua. So... They had no concept of our Western inquisitive minds where we like to know details, where we have shows like VH1, behind the scene, behind the music, behind the whatever the TV program is or this fallen star or whatever, you know, because we want to know weights and heights and haircut styles and we want to know about aunts and uncles and cousins and what they did for a living and who were their major influences? We want to know everything about them. So the gospel writers didn't put the gospels together that way. So that's why in the gospels we have very little about Jesus up until he begins his public ministry. Matthew gives us a little bit, but not really any details. Luke gives us more details. And do you know why? You know why? Because when Luke wrote his gospel, he, he said he was doing a careful study. He was doing all the research so that he could put together an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And he did it for a Roman official who was a friend of his that either he was trying to win over to become a follower of Jesus or who was a new follower of Jesus and he wanted him to have a guidebook. He wanted, to have, he wanted his friend Theophilus to have something that he could read and know and understand things about Jesus. And so the reason we have accounts like the angels going to the shepherds and uh, Mary's song, for example, is because Luke went back and he interviewed Mary. And so when you read, for example, Mary's song after she conceives Jesus, and you know this must have been a precious moment for her, and she, she sings this song that's partly Scripture and partly her testimony and confession, she sang that song to Luke. That's why he records it in his gospel. But if you look at the story, we have Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. Um, she has the baby. The angels go to the shepherds, make the big birth announcement. And then we see Jesus go into the, uh, the temple or the synagogue. He's circumcised. And then we don't see anything else of Jesus until he's 12 years old. And all that happens in Luke chapter 2. And then after that, we don't see anything about Jesus for 18 years until he's 30 years old right here in verse 23. What's going on for 18 years? God's been preparing Jesus for 18 years. All right, let me see if I can let me see if I can give you a big chunk of this. In Luke chapter 2, 
Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And Jesus' other brothers and sisters, you realize Jesus had brothers and sisters, right? They were half-brothers and sisters because Jesus was Mary's first child, but she was impregnated by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a whole supernatural thing. But then Mary and Joseph had children together. but They had a blended family, if you will. Um, and it was their custom because they were faithful people to God. Every year they would go into Jerusalem. They didn't live in Jerusalem, but they would go to Jerusalem. Mary had parents that lived there. If you go with me to the Holy Lands next year, I'll show you where her parents lived. Um, but they would go into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And one such occasion, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went into Jerusalem, Passover feast, They left to go home, and when they got about a day's journey away from Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph realize that they have left Jesus, Yeshua, Ho Jesus, Ho Christos, Ho Curios, the Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. They've left him in Jerusalem. Now, before you start thinking that they're bad parents, let me tell you how they traveled back then. They would travel in big groups. They had a big caravan, not like a Chrysler Dodge caravan, but just a big pack. Thank you for laughing over here. Nobody laughed at 8.30 or 9.45. Thank you for that. The obligatory corny laugh. Thank you. But they would travel in these big packs. And, you know, Jesus is 12, and, you know, in their culture, 12 years old, you're a man, so mom and dad are not really required to look after you you're responsible to stay with them. But, you know, Jesus had brothers and sisters, cousins, kids that were friends because, you know, they traveled in this big group of people. And so, you know, at one time, Mary and Joseph probably saw that they were all together and just assumed that Jesus was with them. Well, they stopped, break camp, going to have dinner, and that's when they realized they left Jesus. They thought he was with the neighbor's kids. The neighbor kids just assumed Mary and Joseph were watching their kid, but they don't have Jesus. So they go back to Jerusalem. They go into the temple, and there is Jesus, 12 years old, prodigy, the Messiah of God. He's been to rabbinical school like all the other kids, but he is not like the other kids. The religious leaders, and let me tell you something, these were not just local religious leaders. These were the big dogs. These were the overachievers. These guys are the equivalent of Harvard professors who are taking care of the religious things in the temple in Jerusalem. This is as high as it gets in Jewish religious life in Jerusalem, and they are blown away by Jesus. They couldn't believe the the questions he was asking, which is how they learned in their time and their culture. But then the answers that he was giving, they were just amazed. Well, let me tell you, Mary was not really impressed. She's been looking for Jesus, and she's a little bit thin-skinned about it. And she comes in and says, where have you been? Why have you done this to us? And Jesus' response is not that of a smart aleck, 12-year-old kid. But he just says, Mama, you knew I would be about my father's business. Here's what that means. We don't know when Jesus became self-aware of the fact that he's the Messiah of God, but we know he knew at 12. So why didn't he go on tour then? He knows he's the Messiah. Mary knows. I'm sure he can get permission. So why didn't he? Because God kept him in Joseph's carpenter shop for 18 years to learn how to be the kind of Messiah that God wanted him to be. Think about some episodes in the life of Jesus. Think about one in particular. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus one day and says, Rabbi, which is his acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is a religious teacher. Rabbi, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. 
startling, isn't it? Get rid of everything. Sell everything you got. Get rid of my avalanche truck. My bass boat. My stuff. My house. That must have been a hard pill to swallow, even coming from a rabbi that you respected that at 30 years of age in their culture was well beyond middle age. But can you imagine what that would have sounded like coming from a 15-year-old? He could have just walked away and said, what does a 15-year-old kid know about the kingdom of God? I don't have to listen to that. In that carpenter shop, Jesus grew. And Luke even says in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in knowledge and stature and rapport with people. During that 18 years, Jesus dealt with people. Some of you uh, work in HR or um, you work in customer service. Some of you own your own business. You know what it is to deal with clients and people. You see the best of people and the worst of people. Jesus learned how to deal with them all. Jesus knew the value of people. He learned that in those 18 years. He learned the value of people who are the haves and the people who are the have-nots. He didn't just come to learn to love poor people. He loved rich people too. He didn't just come to love the pagan. He loved the religious person too. He learned how to empathize with people who have to eke out a living every day of their lives. And can you see then what kind of a difference it made in Jesus' ministry when he went public at 30 years of age versus going out into ministry when he was 12 or 13 or 14 or 15? When he's 30, he can identify with you and me. He knows what it's like to be a part of a blended family, to be a part of a family. He knows what it's like for relationships to have to work out together. He knows what it's like to have to deal with parents and deal with aunts and uncles and nieces. He knows what it's like to um, have the joy and pleasure, and I missed this in business, to have the joy and pleasure of dealing with a customer who is just a joy to do business with and for. And he knew what it was like to want to just grab that customer that you can't hardly deal with and just grab him by the throat and yank him across the counter, but you can't. It was a place of preparation. Don't despise the small place that you're in right now. Let me add this to it. Don't despise the desert place that you're in right now. You know, God has been good to our church, not just in the last year or so, but He's been good to our church for 12 years. Um... And we've had good times. We've had bad times. Every church does. The reason churches have bad times and good times is because it's made up of people. Sometimes people are good and sometimes they're bad. And People are people. The church is made of people. We're all imperfect. So let me just say, if you're here today and you're looking for a perfect church with a perfect pastor and perfect staff and perfect people, we're not it. But God's been good to us. And I can remember through the years just being in different places and just going through some times that seemed exceptionally hard. And God saying, we won't be here forever. Remember the first time we got into our brand new office 
bank building. Many of you know the story. I don't have enough time to tell the whole thing, but I can remember being in that bank going, holy smokes, we're a church. We don't have any money. We don't have any members. And here we are in this bank building, and it's on loan from a bank that, by the way, they let us borrow 30 days shy of five years rent-free. God bless South Trust Bank. But I can remember the prayer out in front of that building, asking God to let us have it, and I can remember standing in that living room one day, or, well, not the living room, but the, the front room, I guess it would have been like in a receptionist area or something like that, Saying they're going, I can't believe we're here. And God's saying, but we won't be here forever. Same when the bad times would come. This is a season. We're not going to stay here. There's lessons to learn, but we won't always be here. I had one of those moments because when we were building this building, I would come over here you know, every day. Sometimes I'd spend all day or half the day or come back several times during the day. And there was one day in particular when I was out on the corner of the property and there were lots of guys out here working, the, the show construction sign was up in the corner. They were our general contractor. And um, if you know anything about con, uh, construction work, they're one of the big guys. And uh, it's hard to go through Charlotte, for example, or Atlanta and not see one of their signs. So their, their signs up and... There's uh, Balkum's Grading and Nursery. They're out here. They're a big name in construction. And then we had subcontractors all over the place, like Zocam. And I just remembered looking out and seeing all these guys out here working. And I know the jobs that they have in other places and things that they've built and things that they've done and um. Our superintendent, for example, he builds high-rises for show construction, and so when you mention a million-and-a-half-dollar building to him, especially when it's just half the building, because, you know, we only, got, we only got half the building here, right? We're waiting to build the other half. You know, it just keeps going that way. What in the world are these people doing here? And God just spoke to me and said, don't despise the small places. I told you we wouldn't be in the small places long. And I believe that's what God wants many of you here today to hear. Don't despise the small places. Don't despise where you're at right now. Don't be bitter about the desert place that you're in because some of you are in the desert relationally, your marriage, your finances. I think it's okay to say, God, why me? But at some point, you have to gather yourself up and say, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me here? What are the lessons I need to learn in this season of my life so that you can thrust me into the next season? Just like Jesus had 18 years of ministry preparation so that he could go and do his public ministry that can we just understate this and say that he had a major impact on the world. Extraordinary, but there had to be a time of preparation. God's preparing you too. But God has us learning lessons at every level so that he can put us in the next level. God won't send you to the next level until you learn everything there is to learn at the level where you are right now. Let me give a little bit of hope to you, to some of those of us who are living in the desert. God never wastes desert experiences. At Rocky River Church, we say it this way. God has given every person a shape. All kinds of shapes. But we've used the word shape to be an acronym for spiritual gifts, heart, 
abilities, personalities, and experiences. In other words, when you become a Christian, God gives you a spiritual gift. Some people, he gives them more than one. Some people are multi-talented, but he gives us all a spiritual gift. He gives us a heart for something. Like some of you have a heart for the poor. Some of you have a heart for children and different kind of ministries. He gives some of us abilities, you know, like Elijah back here playing the piano, uh, Brian, all the people up here on stage. Like Elijah, Elijah can play about anything that is a musical instrument. He has an ability. God gives us all personalities. Some are better than others. But he also gives us experiences. We have life experiences, and that's a part of what shapes us. And listen, God uses those experiences in ministry. For example, when I look around the room, I see people who have been married and divorced but are now happily remarried. I've married most of you. And I can't tell you how many times your story, not your names, but your story comes up when I am counseling with someone who is losing their marriage. And while they can't imagine it right then, I can tell them that there is hope. And that can be your ministry. February's coming up. More divorces are filed for in February than any other time, any other month in the whole year. There are going to be people in February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, and January who need to know through your experiences that have now become your ministry that there is hope for them. Don't hate the small beginnings. Don't hate the desert dwellings because God is preparing you for something. And I'm out of time. But I want us to pray together. Will you stand with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. A journey, I've heard it said, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. The first step in your journey with Jesus is to put your faith and your trust in Him. There are some of you here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but I want to give you the opportunity to do just that today. I don't want you to walk out of here today without the opportunity to know Christ personally as your Lord and Savior. You know, again, in Luke chapter 3, John says, prepare, get ready for the kingdom of God is coming. He was talking about Jesus coming on the scene for the first time. But Jesus has come the first time. He's lived. He's died. He's been resurrected. He has ascended into the Father. And the Scriptures tell us that one day, He's returning. He's coming back. And so the message now is still urgent, if not more urgent, that Jesus is coming back. There'll be a day, there'll be a time when we stand before God and give an accounting for our lives. And the question that'll be asked is, what have you done with my son Jesus? What will you be able to say? Here's what will matter. You should be able to say, I trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. It's not what I have done. It's what He has done for me, through me, and in me. Could you say that? If not, then pray this prayer with me and surrender your life to Jesus. Just say, God, right now, I surrender everything to you. Everything, my life, 
my dreams, my desires, my wants, my treasure, my sin, my guilt, my fear, my worry, my hope. I give it all to you. And maybe you would even say something like this, God, I don't know what you could do with a life like mine, but I give it to you. With all my hurts, habits, and hang-ups, I surrender my life to you. And now just say, Jesus... I want to be prepared for you when you return. So in the best way I know how, right now I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. I'm going to repent, which means I'm going to turn away from the direction I've been traveling in, and I'm going to start going your way. And you, you might just need to know that to other people, that may seem like the wrong way or a backward way, but it's the right way. And now just say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for living so that I too can have life. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. We have... uh, just one last song, and Jeff, let's just let's sing through it just, just twice, like two verses of it. It's such a powerful song. I, I grew up Baptist, and um, there was a song we used to sing. It seemed like we sang it about every Sunday. It's called I Surrender All. Do you know this song? I love these old songs. I love them when we, when we do them. I want you to sing it. I want you to let it be a testimony and uh, don't don't just stand out there and let them sing it. Let's all sing it. And Jeff, at the right time, you just uh, say goodbye. Y'all come back now here, something like that, okay? I love you guys. Thank you for being here today, and I look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you.